There's no one email that's gonna blow it all away. It's about all of it working together. And it's not about what's the one ad that's gonna catch your eye. It's about what do you want to talk to the customer about for six months? No one's sitting there on their phone like, I'm gonna check my email and read this thing like a blog post today. You know, people are usually doing this between errands. It means you only have like three seconds to be eye-catching, but you also still want to be branded as well, putting yourself in the customer's shoes. So that's really where the creative comes in. When you're doing list growth, like does your list growth strategy actually bring you into contact with people who actually might buy your product? And that's really where knowing your customer really well and having some of that data is really important. Um, and kind of also on a side note, making sure you're segmenting those people separately. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about how to play the long game when it comes to lifecycle markets and that's email and SMS marketing. It's a great episode you do not want to miss, so do stay tuned. Retail and e-commerce have witnessed an unprecedented transformation in the last decade. The widespread adoption of mobile technology, social media, as well as the lowered cost of cloud-based technology have not only eroded the barriers to entry in retail, but it's also led to the rapid rise and dominance of digital native product brands that sell directly to their customers. On this podcast, you'll get the scoop on customer acquisition and retention strategies employed by high growth digital native product brands. Not being afraid to spend because you know that customer is going to pay it back uh, three or four fold. That's when you start to unlock channels in the way that they were meant to be used. Listen to interviews with experts at the forefront of technology and innovation in digital retail. Three years ago, they wouldn't have come to us because, yeah, the macro trend of cloud, Wi-Fi, broadband availability, that was a real, that was a real problem. Hear first-hand stories from founders of innovative direct-to-consumer brands. Although I was thinking about the competition, I was more thinking about, like, how do I just build a freaking successful business? We focus on driving as much traffic as possible, converting that traffic, uh, and then dumping money back into driving more traffic. These insights will help you consistently 2x growth in specific areas of your direct-to-consumer brand. This is the 2x e-commerce podcast, hosted by Kunle Campbell. As you continue to grow your e-commerce business, access to growth capital would increasingly play a significant role in achieving and surpassing your financial and social goals. Why should you give up equity or pay high interest rates to grow your business? There is a new way to access growth capital that transforms e-commerce businesses. Wayflyer has shaken the way e-commerce operators access working capital. With a dedication to only D2C e-commerce businesses, Wayflyer will fund you on a fairer fund-as-you-grow model. Meaning if your sales slow down, so does the amount you transfer back. There's just a simple fee and the funds you need to grow are deposited to your account instantly. It's worth checking out on wayflyer.com. That's W-A-Y-F-L-Y-E-R. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the 2X e-commerce podcast. I'm your host, Kunay Campbell, and this is a podcast dedicated to rapid growth in online retail. Um, the episode you're about to listen to is an interview I had with Jess Chan. She's the founder and CEO of Longplay, a full-service retention and lifecycle marketing agency for direct-to-consumer e-commerce brands. Jess 
bootstrap the agency, scaling it to over a million dollars in revenue in the first 18 months. And since then, the business has continued to scale and thrive sustainably and profitably. Longplay has generated over $300 million in email revenue, working with the clients from startups to 500 million plus brand. Terrific episode I had with her. Quality, quality conversation. She talks about the entrepreneur operating system. This is about the second or third time I'm hearing about it. Um, she sheds a bit more light in it over the conversation, but more importantly, she speaks to personalization, segmentation, your email marketing strategy, and how to look at, look at it holistically. And also from a long-term view, terrific episode. I do not want to say much. Um, she is a very, very clever speaker. She's going to be speaking at, um, commerce Excel conference. Um, if you haven't already go to commerceexcel.com to get your tickets, great episode. Enjoy this episode and I'll catch you on the other side. Thank you for listening. The 2X e-commerce podcast is brought to you by Klaviyo, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform for email and SMS messaging. Whether you're launching your e-commerce business or taking your brand to the next level, Klaviyo gives you the tools to get going faster. That is why it's trusted by over 50,000 e-commerce brands like Brooklinen, Non, and Chubby's. Build your contact list, send emails that pop, and create marketing moments that build valuable customer relationships over any distance. Get started for free today. Visit clavio.com forward slash 2x to create your free account. That is K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com forward slash 2x. Hey Jess, welcome to the 2x e-commerce podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to chat today. Uh, I, I am. I've been looking forward to this conversation. When the opportunity came to to speak with you guys at Long Play, I was like, um, please let's let's just let's just go for it. Let's go for it. Um, for 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 listeners who don't know who you are, Jess Chan, um, CEO founder of um, Long Play Brands. Um, could you just take a minute to to to, to give us a brief introduction? Yeah, um, I am the founder and CEO of Longplay Brands. Um, we are a full-service retention lifecycle marketing agency for direct-to-consumer e-com brands. So we typically work with brands, manage all of their email and SMS, and really build out you know holistic uh, customer journeys through email and SMS to nurture, convert, and retain um, their their customers at each stage of that customer journey. Um, I got my background um, as we were talking about earlier in actuarial science and economics, and then kind of worked my way up into a CMO role at a D2C e-com company and then started Longplay from there. So Longplay was really kind of honestly scratching my own itch of building the, the retention life cycle marketing agency that I couldn't find as a CMO. Interesting. So this is the, that's the grown-up intro to, or the intro to grown-up um, Jess, Jess Chan, um, who is like the CEO, founder, entrepreneur of um you know of of of, of quite a, a a growing fast growing you know um retention agency um should we go back to to child jess you know what was growing up like um and, and how were your formative years to you being an entrepreneur now yeah that's a great question um honestly childhood was amazing um i had like the best parents that anyone could ask for um they did they did a really good job of kind of letting me explore my own interests um, and also 
taking responsibility for my own actions and, and just being responsible for trying the best I could, which I think is a, one of those values that um, doesn't come out until you're really tested um, in the mm-hmm. entrepreneurship space. So childhood was amazing. Um, and I was lucky to have, you know, different mentors that I guess kind of found me at different stages of my life. Um, and one, one of the key ones was uh, my high school teacher, Cody, who just was a really big part of expanding my worldview and teaching me that there's so much more to life. And, you know, life really is about your choices. You could choose anything. Um, and he really broadened me up to realizing that you don't have to do the linear path. You don't, you don't, you don't have to go to school and then graduate into the job. Um, you can take a year off, you can completely switch career paths. You can change your mind at any given point. Like you're only responsible for your choices and you always get to choose. And I think, again, that was a really powerful lesson to learn so early on. And I think even though at that time there wasn't necessarily a major life switch I wanted to make, I think that that idea um, was like planted a seed in me that allowed me to kind of have the courage to guess, kind of jumpstart my entrepreneurship uh, journey. But I think the big, um, the big, I guess, catalyst of when I think the journey really began was, you know, I did my degree in in actuarial science, economics, and political science um, in school. So literally as far from business, marketing um, as as possible. And I was kind of on that path for a little while. It felt like the logical choice and I was good at it. Um, I was good at math. I was good at economics and I could do it, but it's something just didn't feel right for me. Um, And, you know, second year, third year, I went through a depressive episode and it was a year and a half of just really, just really dark shit, quite frankly, you know, Um, suicidal thoughts, panic attacks constantly, um, just feeling so trapped and so overwhelmed at the same time and kind of not really seeing a way out. Um, And I think the entry into the kind of the self-development space was my way of pulling myself out of that. And because in my childhood, every, you know, whenever anything went wrong, I would just read something. Um, Basically, I was like, I don't feel great. I'm just going to read. So I kind of started going online, found all these niche blogs, like there's Live Your Legend, um, which is still going on, Cal Newport, Seth Godin, um, basically all of those self-development books that are so popular now. Um, So kind of went down that path and pulled myself out really with all these daily routines. And I was like, as long as I run three hours a day and listen to a Tim Ferriss podcast and write a write a blog post and do my, do my studies, you know, at least I can kind of keep sane. So that was kind of my entryway into everything. And I think when I started pulling myself up, um, it kind of was a catalyst for me to explore, you know, now that I can breathe again, you know, what, what do I actually want to do? Um, and that was when I ended up applying for a job as a marketing assistant at a company called Best Self Co. Um, and worked with them part-time, you know, in my last years of college. And when I graduated, actually become, became the chief marketing officer. So I was working with them for, you know, I think three years. Um, amazing team, amazing company, amazing products. Um, it was just really definitely one of the, one of the happiest periods in my life, um, a very fulfilling period of my life. And then um, kind of went and went started long play um, kind of almost accidentally as things kind of took up, took off. There's there's a lot to unpick from from your um your, your your initial story you know um given the fact that um in in you know in college you, you had that breakdown and you you read your way pretty much out of a rot um is 
is something to um yeah to to to, to really really um reflect on and, and uphold really um speaking to to best self call um many i can't quite remember when was it it was like season four we we had um alan brower from 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 best go um best best self call and um he we recorded like two hours of an episode. We had to split it out into two episodes. Um, and it just sounded like it was, it was building something quite substantial and to, to know your part of it. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's super, super interesting, um, in itself. So what takeaways did you, would you say, so when you transformed, I, I just want to really, um, get back into what daily habits did you, adopt that just formulated or changed the way you you um you started to view perspectives and and life in in general and i know okay entrepreneurship is probably going to be that route i will take that's a great question i'm actually going to answer it slightly differently in the sense that kind of like ideas that powered me during that time and also kind of daily routines and i think one of the core ideas was this idea that like I could rebuild myself um, and really kind of reconstruct everything because I felt so trapped. I felt like I didn't know who I was or where I was going and just kind of felt this like total disintegration of like, who am I? What do I want to do? I don't know what's going on. Um, and especially with suicidal thoughts and panic attacks, it kind of, if anyone's been through it, it's almost like this reality distortion field hmm. that happens. Yeah. Um, I think one of the core ideas there was this idea of like, okay, if I don't like what I have in my life, um, I don't like where I'm going and I don't really know if I like who I am specifically, um, or I don't know if I like, I'm like fully expressed as a person. Let me just build it all from scratch. You know, what do I want my life to look like? Who do I want to be? Like, what do I want my personality to be like? What do I care about as a person? Um, what do I want to be, um, acting out of, you know, what am I choosing? Um, you know, what are my core values? So I think that was probably one of the core ideas that um, really powered everything. And then from there it became great. If I can rebuild everything from scratch, if I can rebuild who I am, my identity, my, my life path, then like, what, what do I want to build? Um, and I think that that was kind of the catalyst to start looking at just reading. I like, like how you phrase it, re reading my way out of the problem. Um, it was essentially like, great, then let me figure out who I want to be. Like let's, let's read some self-development books. Like what types of people do I, do I really look up to? Um, what kind of person do I want to be? How do we decide what kind of person we want to be? And that's really when I read a lot of history, um, read a lot of kind of self-development books. And then when it came to, you know, what kind of life do I want to build? Um, that's when, you know, Tim Ferriss and the four hour work week, um, all of those entrepreneurship kind of lifestyle um, guides kind of came up. And I think, one of the biggest um, differences for me was really about like, how do I want to feel and how do I want to act? Um, so instead of saying like, I want to be, be able to be on a beach and I want to work a few hours, it was more of like, I want to love what I do. Um, I want to feel um, excited. For me, it was really important that I wanted to wake up excited every day. And I was like, if I can just wake up excited every day, like that to me is already such a great life. Because you can be excited about so many things and you can, things can be challenging, but if you're excited for them, then it's great. Um, so I kind of create these kind of core pillars, I guess, on, mm. on solving that problem of like, what do I want to build? And then from there, a lot of just morning routine. So for a while I did, you know, wake up at 6am, I would read for an hour, two hours in the morning. That was super critical to me. And then 
after an hour or two hours, I'd be really excited to go to work or excited to do whatever I need to do next. I did a lot of time blocking um, to kind of honestly distract my mind because my mind was going off on these really dark places. So it's like, no time to think. It is 10 a.m. and it's time to write your blog post of the day and then you will eat lunch and then you will study for two hours and then you have class because um, this was also during you know school. So um, the routine was really important for me for sure. Super, super interesting. Super, super interesting. Looking at, you know, what you want to be and then, you know, um, trying to just align with um, the people that you want to be and, um, you know, just stick into it's a routine. Okay. So long play. When did you start? What's been your journey thus far? You're a full service retention and lifecycle marketing partner, which we love. You're thinking long-term actually like the play there, long play, um, you know, retention is is what actually grows e-commerce brands. Um, so, so what's been the journey you left, you left, um, you started out phenomenally. You started out as a, as, as a marketing assistant at best, um, best self co moved on. You finished that off with CMO, with the CMO role, heading all their marketing. And then you moved on to, to, to long play. What's, what's been the journey thus far? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I mean, I loved it. At best self. So I actually had no intention to leave at any point. I knew I wanted to start my own thing at some point, but I, I also just loved it there. So um, I was attending, you know, different entrepreneurship events or just kind of conferences um, and just meeting people there. Um, and we, I would kind of share what I was doing naturally on the retention lifecycle marketing side, email side with, um, with best self. So I was already kind of flexing my muscles a little bit there and loved the channel. Um, and then eventually kind of other entrepreneurs would say, or, you know, can I hire you? Can you consult? Um, can you do this? So at first I was kind of dabbling and, you know, someone would be like, can you help me with content marketing? I'm like, sure. Can definitely help you with that. Um, so I kind of said yes to everything. And then, um, eventually kind of narrowed it down to email and SMS because I saw a future in those channels. Um, it felt like the right model and also just kind it was difficult to get into, you know, it's, it's a little bit easier to go into content marketing or influencer marketing. Um, but email and SMS really flex so many different skill sets, um, that I thought it was kind of like my unique edge to kind of enter into that. So, um, that was kind of how it started. And it really just got to a point where I was like, I, I was already hiring, you know, VAs to help with some of the, the backend stuff I was doing. I was working as efficiently as possible. Um, but there was, one, I think Black Friday, Cyber Monday, like Q4 period where I was running all of the BFCM Q4 stuff for Best Self, managing the team there. And I was also personally running it for like three or four other brands. And I was writing all of the emails and doing all of it. So I was like, this is as efficient as I can possibly get. Like there's no more efficiency to be squeezed out from me personally. And that was kind of a not breaking point, but more of like a catalyst of like, okay, there's actually something here. Um, cause I, at that point I wasn't actively looking for clients. People were just kind of coming in. Um, and then eventually just really reached that point of like, I got to choose. And I, I wasn't able to, to balance both and do both justly. And I think it was just kind of reached, reached a point where I'm like, I think I've, I love my time at best self, but also like for me personally, I think I learned everything I could at that stage in my journey. And it was time to, to move on. You certainly need to, you know, learn the ropes and then, you know, get on your two feet and eventually fly, you know, um, just, just span your wings and, and, and fly, which is what you did. Um, so, so, so what's the situation now at, um, at, 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 at long play? Um, are you, um, how many clients you have? How have you built it? It's been two years now. I, I believe you started out in 2020 at this was, was that in the pandemic? What, what was What's the first? What, what was the first year like, and 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 what is it like now? Um, it just 
please break the, the journey down. Yeah. So I think we actually got our start probably around May 2019. Um, okay. Obviously, the start date's a little bit fuzzy because of the journey, you know? It's, mm-hmm. you know, when, when did it really start and stop? But say like around May 2019 is probably when we got our start. The first, the first, honestly, year, two years was grueling. Like it was, I think it took a piece of me. Um, and it really takes your, your heart and soul to tend to this business. Um, and, I, and I think after that whole process, especially with entrepreneurship culture being so popular these days, um, I'm the first one to say, like, don't start a business unless you can't not start a business. Like if it's, it's something just inside you that you have to do, because it is not sitting on a beach working remotely. I had a lot of great times like that where it looked very picturesque, but also so many nightmares and so many things that come up. Um, it definitely was not easy. But we scaled to um, our first million within that first 18 months. We had our first like million dollar year um, within incredible. months, essentially the first like full year in business. Um, so that was really cool. But it was also so hard. You know, it was um, what I call kind of like a castle built on sand around mm-hmm. like we ha- it was a million dollars. It was but it was not sustainable, um, not because we didn't have product market fit, not because we didn't have a good business or it was flashy, but it was just like it was we didn't have the infrastructure for it. I was burnt out. Um, People infrastructure I, or systems? Um, I'd say a little bit of both. Um, we were already doing a lot of systems-based stuff. So we had SOPs. We had a lot of delegation. Um, and I wasn't actually doing everything myself, but we didn't have the actually infrastructure for it. And in that, it was kind of like mm. you know, good payroll systems, basic like accounts receivable and just like cash flow mm. management. Um, basic kind of like org chart and team structure because it was very flat. Everyone was managing or was reporting up to me, but I hate management and I don't like, like we're talking about, I don't want to be accountable for other people. I can be accountable for myself, but once I give you the vision, give you the instructions, I am pretty much, you know, done with the problem. Um, So it was not set up to be sustainable in the sense where we didn't have the the right org chart structure we didn't have the right growth plans for people so i wanted to invest in people but i was burnt out and also i'm not a manager um we didn't have the right financial systems the right legal systems to kind of just cover our bases um and with that kind of missing some of these core systems to scale which is less so of individual sops and it's more about how do you actually um, integrate and onboard people and how do you make sure those sops are actually executed on um And that's where um, my COO and also partner at Longplay now, um, Rachel Nidecker, was so critical to getting past that first million. Um, Because the first million was an achievement, but getting past that was probably even the harder part, believe it or not. Um, It was really about stabilizing. And we spent so much time on foundation building. And she was really the one who honestly, transparently, like kind of forced me into this EOS model. And I say forced in the most beautiful, loving way, because I was so resistant, you know, I was kicking and screaming. Um, but I think the EOS model, she really taught me how important you, operations you, is. You've, you've got to break the EOS model for, for people who don't know, you know, what, 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 what is it, what, what it is. It's the entrepreneurial um, operating system, right? Yeah. Um, okay. And it is essentially, honestly, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on this. So she should definitely have Rachel on the podcast at some point as well. Um, but um, the EOS model essentially functions off of having a visionary and an integrator. Um, and typically that's going to be your CEO, um, your founder, and then also your COO as well. And essentially the 
COO or, or integrator is the only person that reports up to the visionary because the visionaries <laughs> don't like management. Um, and then the COO runs the entirety of the business. So it really is a true, a true partnership. And I think that's probably one of the things I value most now in, in scaling long play was like, I did the first million alone and I needed to do it alone uh, for personal reasons, but now I get to do next million and next, the next 10 million, 20 million. Fantastic. And it takes, um, it really takes a partnership. It really takes someone who is world-class at operations. Um, and Rachel is the best COO I've ever mm. met. And it's so hard to find people who mm. are not only world-class at what they do, but also understand business and understand entrepreneurs. We're a finicky bunch, you know, Absolutely. Um, with. let's take this quick break to hear from our sponsors. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly 500 billion by 2025. As a fast-growing area in commerce, subscriptions hold tremendous opportunities to build a community of customers who share your values. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale subscription offerings. Recharge powers the growth of over 15,000 subscription merchants and their communities, turning one-time transactions into long-term customer relationships. Whether you're a direct-to-consumer business or an omni-channel brand, subscriptions strengthen the brand relationships with your customers and make it easy for customers to make repeat purchases. With subscriptions, merchants are able to experience predictable revenue, increased customer loyalty, and higher average order values. Turn transactions into relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Get started today with subscription payment solution trusted by over 50 million subscribers worldwide by heading over to rechargepayments.com forward slash 2x. That is rechargepayments.com forward slash 2x. Did you know that loyal customers are nine times more likely to convert compared to a first-time shopper? That's why exceptional customer service is so important for your retention and growth. I recommend using Gorgeous, the leading help desk for Shopify, Magento, and big commerce merchants. Gorgeous combines all your communication channels, including email, SMS, social media, live chat, and phone into one platform. This saves your team hours per day and makes managing customer orders a breeze. It also integrates seamlessly with your existing tech stack so you can access customer information and even edit, return, refund, or create an order right from your help desk. To learn more, go to gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R. G-I-A-S.com and mention 2X e-commerce podcast for two months free. That is gorgeous.com for two months free. Just mention 2X e-commerce. This tells me two things. Um, first, that um, you guys have a unique approach to your product in terms of like the way you execute on lifecycle marketing is unique to your company, probably proprietary. Um, and then the second is, what's my second again? Uh, my, my second point is just on the, you're selective with the sort of clients you take 
um, in order for you to deliver and maintain the staying power because it's 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 again what you're doing is down to retention, right? It's about keeping the customers, not acquiring, because it's so much work trying to onboard a new client, right? Um, so how, how what, where are you guys from a client base now? How many clients are you serving now? Um, are you agnostic, geographically agnostic? Are you platform agnostic um, from an ESP standpoint? And um, yeah, just, I'd like to, to find out more, please. Yeah. Um, so we keep our client count roughly around kind of the 20 client mark. Um, mm-hmm. And we do have plans to kind of continue scaling that, but we've always been pretty adamant that like, we're not really the agency that we want to start, you know, merging with other agencies, getting a client roster of you know, 150 clients and all of that, because inev- inevitably the, the, um, the quality goes down. Um, so Instead, we could just focus on finding higher quality clients, working with them on a deeper level. Um, and also now we're actually starting a software company as well um, as our growth strategy. Um, but we say around um, that 15 to 20, usually 20 um, client mark and um, really delivering that kind of personalized like white glove experience. Mm-hmm. Um, from a kind of industry standpoint, we exclusively work with D2C e-com industry or um, clients, but, um, they are usually kind of all over the place, you know, apparel, fashion, beauty, supplements, home goods, you know, we've worked with kind of car, like companies serving car owners as well. Um, but we typically, most of our clients are on Shopify, some are on like, you know, WooCommerce, BigCommerce, um, but all all of our clients move over to Klaviyo. Um, so we do have clients who kind of start elsewhere or are are on outdated, um, ESPs. Um, we exclusively work on Klaviyo just because it's so, they they really do genuinely have the best platform for D2C e-com businesses who want to focus on retentionalized like marketing because you need that data. You need that to be able to leverage all of that data and um and that's kind of the difference so that's that's usually where we where we operate yeah we we, we always hear good things about clavio we use clavio ourselves, and um, they're actually sponsors to to this podcast so so there you go right um in terms of your your approach um what's from a first principles perspective how should d2c brands approach lifecycle marketing in today's world of email and SMS? That is a great question. Um, so I'd say the approach is one to look at it holistically. Um, I find that a lot of clients are just brands um, that, I, that I speak to try to apply top of funnel and ads marketing strategies to retention lifecycle marketing. And mm. in the world of ads, you're always looking for that next ad that's going to go viral or that next Facebook ad that's really going to have that, you know, 10x row as, and it's kind of like placing bets. Mm. Uh, and each ad is kind of separate from each other. You know, it's, it's about like disrupting yourself on the retention life cycle marketing uh, side. It's actually about thinking holistically. It's not about the one, there's no one email that's going to blow it all away. It's about all of it working together. And it's not about what's the one ad that's going to catch your eye. It's about what do you want to talk to the customer about for six months? Um, so when we look at customer lifecycle journeys, when we onboard new clients, we always talk about timeframes in six months, 12 months, two years. What's your ideal customer journey? How do you want them to uh, interact with your brand? What do you want them to think of first? What do you want them to shop first? Um, you know, how often are they going to come back ideally? Um, what are their purchase patterns? What are, what's their mindset? 
And we very rarely started the conversation with what kind of email strategy would you like to try? Like what ideas have you had? Um, and, and that's, and, and that's, to, or like what has worked really well in the past? Um, Cause one, we can, we can obviously look that stuff up, but two, that's just the wrong way to think about it. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest difference that um, hmm. shift, I guess, that brands need to make when they're really focused on retention lifecycle marketing is it's not going to be the one explosive thing that's going to 10x your revenue in, in two months. If any email agency is sitting there saying like, we're going to 10x your revenue in 60 days, they can, like we can do that too, but it's going to be at the cost of burning out your list because the back end and the front end don't operate the same way. You can have the one Facebook ad that actually changes your business in a real way. Um, that's not the way email is going to work because you're essentially burning up the trust of your customers. So that's interesting. So, so, so you're really thinking about the customer first and you're thinking about that conversation, that long-term conversation you're going to have, um, you know, pardon, pardon, pardon the pardon, long play. Um, the long-term, um, you know, um, conversation you're going to have with the client over six months, nine months, even one year, and um, you're nurturing, uh, you know, a relationship, um, which probably takes us to the topic of segmentation. Um, how do best-in-class um, e-commerce businesses segment customers? So you do have those. Um, you know, those um, winner Facebook ads that, you know, get those impulse purchases. Um, but, but a lot of, um, a, 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 a lot of um, the leads or, or sales do slip through the cracks um, and, and never, ever come to fruition. And um, I think what a lot of brands may be missing, I'm not an expert in this, um, you know, might be, you know, an effective segmentation strategy. So, so what, what, what is your approach to, to segmentation? How are you, um, you know, sort of, um, viewing customers, um, you know, to, in, in order to speak to them, you know, um, effectively. Yeah, for sure. So when it comes to con customer segmentation, um, I think there's kind of two camps that, uh, people take there. One is kind of the typical customer avatar approach. And we still use the avatar approach um, in terms of positioning, messaging, branding. When it comes to segmentation and actually building on different customer journeys, we actually typically look at purchase behavior uh, more. So we'll look at um, what, what is the first purchase that someone made? And does that actually indicate what their next few purchases are going to look like? You know, if let's say... Let's say theoretically you have like a health and wellness company selling supplements and you have kind of a group of supplements that help with like bloating and you have a group of supplements that help with like fatigue and, you know, one with sleep. Um, those are three very different. Like we can talk about the customer who's in L.A. and makes this much money and drives this car, but like that's not really actually useful. What's useful is did the, did the person come in for bloating or sleep or for fatigue? What did they buy first? What kind of content did they read? And that's where, you know, what ad they came in helps because it's like, you know, whatever they clicked on, whatever caught their eye gives you an indication of like what their pain point might be. Um, so from there, we might say, um, you know, typically we find that customers who complete the quiz on site to help them choose their supplements have a very different buyer journey than someone who, uh, who doesn't. So great. Let's segment the customers, customers who complete the quiz. These are our next goals for them. If they complete the quiz, we want to make sure they buy the product that's recommended. Then we want to follow up with a lot of content because um, they seem to really um, care about something that's personalized. So we're going to give them personal content to, to kind of continue the conversation on what they found out with the quiz. Um, but if people don't complete the quiz, we're going to first try to get them to complete the quiz. But if not, maybe we will 
try to give them this like starter product that's the cheapest is a quick fix um, for whatever their their key issue is. So it's really about um, kind of starting to, whenever we talk about customer lifecycle mapping, it kind of becomes this like tree with like different branches. So it's like, what what are the three or four key actions that customers take when they come on your site? It's probably some combination of like they take a quiz, they add something to cart, they don't do anything or, you know, they they browse Um, from those four different starting points. What are the next two or three things that you want them to do? And each action they take opens up two or three other pathways that they could take as well. Um, So all of our segmentation is usually based off of um, customer behavior, whether it is purchase patterns or like what they also what they don't do as well. You, 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 I, I like the same way you judge people by what they, they do and not what they say. Um, and um, so you're taking that, you know, what exactly they do and, you know, where can we take them, you know, next, essentially, you're, you're almost like a chauffeur, um, you know, guided via email and SMS. Um, speaking of which, um, from a, um, you, you spoke to quizzes um, just a, a moment ago, um, should quizzes be in all life cycle marketing strategies um that's a good question i'd say no um because i think it really depends on your product i think there was a period when quizzes were just really popular back in like i don't even know 2019 2018 i think everyone's like quizzes work let's throw a quiz on your site but at the end of the day it comes again comes back to what's the customer mindset what's the customer experience and what's the customer journey and Quizzes are there to solve a problem. Um, they're there to solve the problem of choice fatigue. They're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to, which one to choose. I don't know where to start. Great. You don't have to decide anything. Just take this quiz and answer these questions. Um, so I think the only time it makes sense to take quizzes is, quite frankly, like if you actually have anything to deliver of value with the quiz or... Or sometimes it's really just that customers can't decide and it's like one method of deciding. So typically with quizzes, they work really well with like companies with large product catalogs where they're all kind of the same in a sense where like if you sell deodorant and it's all the same deodorant, it's just different scents and someone just doesn't know what to choose. And like that, that's a good one where it's kind of like, that's all the same. Here's a quick quiz, like figure out which one's your personality type or which one suits you. Um, apparel, same thing. You know, you might have all the t- all t-shirts are kind of the same. Um, so it's like, you know, give them some, nudge them in some direction or it is um, problems that solve a very, very specific pain point, like uh, supplement companies. And they, they really are trying to find the right product to solve their problem. And in those cases, quizzes make sense. But if you have like three products, you probably don't need a quiz unless it's re- really hard to decide for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do find quizzes sometimes overused um, just for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. What's your take on email collection in 2022? What, what, what is the best way to, um, as someone puts it, identify, you know, cold traffic, you know, um, and, you know, via email in terms of like email capture? Yeah. Um, so with email capture, I guess, email list growth, um, yes. one of the most into- important things I'd say for people to remember is you don't need an email list. You need a list of potential customers. Um, and I think people get that mixed up very, very quickly. They talk about building an email list. And now they talk about buying an email list. So like, what if we run a giveaway? And it's like, all the strategies could be legitimate, but they're only legitimate if you feel like that group of people that's going to come in through that method actually might end up buying your product. Um, so if you sell supplements and giving away an, an iPad, you're not going to get really a list of potential customers. You're getting a list of people who 
want the chance to win an iPad. Um, but if you're giving a giveaway with a list of like supplements that are very similar to what you do, or just giving away your own supplements and like, maybe, maybe you might have some crossover there. Um, or you still might end up with a list of people who just want free stuff. Um, so I think that's the first question of like, when you're doing list growth, like does your list growth strategy actually bring you into contact with people who actually might buy your product? And that's really where knowing your customer really well and having some of that data is really important. Um, and con- kind of also on a side note, making sure you're segmenting those people separately. Um, I see a lot of people come in with, we have clients come in, they're like, I bought a list and they've been sending to the, they merged a list with their legitimate customers. And now you just have a hodgepodge of people. Um, so keep it separate. So if it's bad, you can just kind of sequester them away and you know, no damage has been done. Um, but I'd say like when it terms comes to list growth, like again, foundational principle is like, are these people, are these a list of your potential customers? And then what is that, um, what is some incentive that you can give them that will at least get them in the door and get them on your email list? So it could be, you know, typically it's 10, 10% off, 15% off your store. I still think that's a very effective strategy. Um, email list capture is pretty straightforward at this point. Um, and, and I think customers are some more savvy these days of just like, yeah, they expect their 10% off, 15% off. Um, and it, it always still continues working. Um, I've also seen really successful, um, kind of list growth strategies with partnerships or with um, uh, kind of lead gen content um, and things like that. But from a strategy standpoint, I don't think I don't think the innovation is in what's this new new hack or new giveaway or a new channel. It's about leaning into everyone has so much data these days on their customers. Lean into that more. Like really understand what do your customers want to learn from you. Um, what do customers really want to hear about from you. Um, and turn that into a lead capture mechanism, whether it's content, PDFs, partnerships, um, or, or just a simple like discount um, on, on that email capture. Super, inter- super interesting. What are your North Star metrics in, in lifecycle marketing? Um, let me think about ones that, I mean, there's obviously there's a usual revenue, open rate, click rate, purchase rate, but I don't think that's, you know, most people already have those kind of on the top of their list. Um, I'd say like dollar per recipient is one that isn't um, used as much, but I find it a really good kind of apple to apple metric that removes all of the, like if you have dollar per recipient, you can ignore the open click rate purchase rate to an extent. Um, And it gives you that quick, like, is this working or not working? And Um, would you, would you benchmark it against, um, you know, other companies in your vertical, or would you benchmark it against just, uh, you know, a general um, expectation? Um, that's a good question. So typically with our benchmarking, obviously we pay attention to industry benchmarks, but we found they're not very helpful um, in actually deciding what to do. Um, and one that's one of the principles in our approach to reporting is it has to be actionable. So if I tell you that a company has a 30% open rate, you're like, that doesn't mean anything. Is that good? Is that bad? Um, so we actually typically benchmark off of the company's own performance over the last six months to say like, was this campaign good or bad? Is it trending upwards or is it trending downwards? Um, because some clients come in and like, or like we've been working with them for two years and it's like, we're already far above industry benchmarks. And if we just looked at industry benchmarks, it's like, okay, great. Like we're, we're above it. We're doing great, but there's still so much growth opportunity. So that's not very helpful. And then some clients come in, they're so far below industry benchmarks. It's like, yeah, you're off. But like, we already knew that. And you're going to be continued to be off for like months in, as it is trending upward. So like, that's not very actionable either. So industry benchmark is like good to know once. 
And then, you know, you don't really do much off of it. It's more of a fun fact really than anything else. Um, And and I think they are useful for, I guess, like people who aren't specialized in email because you need something to gauge off of. Um, But for us, we we look at this stuff every day. Um, But to kind of answer your earlier question, I think two other important metrics are time between purchases. So typically a lot of clients um, talk about like wanting repeat purchases, but if you have a really high repeat purchase rate, but it takes you 10 years to get that second purchase, what good is that? So the time between purchases and actually shortening that and getting that cash flow um, in the door is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, third one is get, putting a time frame on your lifetime value. So typically people talk about like lifetime value, but again, yeah. if it takes you hundred years to get your lifetime value, then like what yeah. good is that? You're going to go out of business. So mm-hmm. we usually use six month lifetime value as like a benchmark yeah. time yeah. frame so that you have something to gauge off of. Um, mm-hmm. And then the last one is lapse rate. Um, so lapse rate is really applicable for, more for like kind of software companies, but I do think it's still very applicable for um, for e-com companies is basically like if someone doesn't buy or if someone has bought from you and doesn't buy again within 90 days, then they're probably never going to buy from you again. Um, that means 90 days is your lapse rate. Uh, and that helps you set timeframes on when you start need to start kind of trying to win back people. Absolutely. And can you get all these metrics from Clavio? Um, lapse rate is a little bit tougher. Um, six month lifetime value is also tougher. Um, dollar per recipient, um, is definitely in Clavio. Industry benchmarks are also in Clavio. Um, and at the end of the day, like lapse rate and six month, six month lifetime value is hard to find on Clavio, mainly because they're not email metrics. They're the retention and lifecycle mm-hmm. marketing metrics. So you're typically going to find those in whatever dashboards you're using for like more, life cycle kind of data like, like tri- um, triple whale should be able to yeah, deliver. Triple whale yeah, is fantastic. yeah makes sense makes sense what's the importance of design um the one thing i picked up having you know come to your your website actually the two things i've picked up coming to your website is um your focus on strategy which you're going to talk about um, and and then your creatives, you know, um, there's some really nice looking mobile first templates. I'm seeing, you know, typically people would display what it looks like on desktop, but you guys have been intentional here on on, on mobile. So should we just? Do you want to f- um, speak to the importance and um, the place of creatives in in a lifecycle marketing um, strategy, please? Yeah, for sure. I mean, our our creative team, both copy and design, is. They're phenomenal. Um, and they've done a really, really good job at finding that blend and really developing technique strategies on the creative side to make sure that it's both conversion optimized um, and also really aligned with the brand tone and voice. And I find that most brands choose one, one or the other. So that's where you hear a lot of um, a lot of debate around, you know, how like plain text or not, um, you know, how aggressive should you have these banners? Should you have a big red flashing button? You know, all that direct response type um, approach. And then also you have the branded approach. Um, and our team has done such an amazing job at really blending the two that their first thought is like, it's not an either or, it's an and. Um, and we kind of approach email design similar to website optimization or like CRO design. It's, you need to be branded. You need to be aligned, but you also let's test on what's going to be optimized. So they have kind of their own principles around, you know, basic things like let's make sure there's a call to action above the fold. Like let's make sure this is really readable. If you're going to kind of quickly scroll through it, Um, they'll run through a lot of kind of, again, putting yourself in the customer's shoes and thinking like, Hey, if this person's 
you know, in line for coffee, checking their email, which is probably what most people are are doing. Like no one's sitting there on their phone. Like, I'm going to check my email and read this thing like a blog post today. You know, people are usually doing this between errands. It means you only have like three seconds to be eye catching, but you also still want to be branded as well. Putting yourself in the customer's shoes. So that's really where the creative comes in. It's about it, it, at the end of the day, it's the um, kind of like the materialization of strategy. And it's like, we put so much work into what the company or what the customer needs to hear, when they need to hear it, what they need to hear, what point of their customer life cycle they're in and like, what's their customer journey? Where are they at mindset wise? And now you have the creative and they have the toughest job, which is um, how do you bring all of that strategy together in a way that is interesting, in a way that's unique, um, in a way that the customer is actually like, Ooh, this, this thing caught my eye or this thing really resonates with me. Um, so when we talk about creative internally, um, strategy is part of that. Like there is kind of creative strategy around what does, what is the strategic way to communicate this message through copy? What is the strategic way for copy and design to actually work together to communicate something in a different way? Yeah. I was, I was going to ask if your, your copy writers and, and designers sit in the, you know, in the same room essentially, but I think you've answered the question already. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, we work, we we're a fully remote team. Um, yeah. so that's kind of where collaboration is always a little bit tough. So we, we still have kind of copy start the process, but, um, it definitely is kind of a collaborative thing along the way as Perfect. well. Makes sense. Makes, makes a lot of sense. And then speaking to strategy, which, which I think is always step one, you know, you just mapping out as you alluded to earlier, which is like, you know, um, not like who is the, what's a customer persona, like, you know, what, what have they done? Where are they in the customer journey? Have they purchased one item? Have they not purchased? And, you know, what is their next steps going to look like? You know, that strategy mapping, how long does it take you to really map out a strategy? Do you sort of sit down with the founders to really understand or, or the operational team to really understand, um, you know, their offering so you can, you know, sort of map those journeys out. I just would like to, you know, understand, you know, I, I would, I would assume that um, strategy is the first is kind of like your first step. Um, but, but what does strategy look like from, for, you know, lifecycle marketing strategy look like? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so our onboarding period is actually between four to six weeks. And that is one of those like un- non-negotiables for us because it, it's so critical to the quality of what we build. Um, and it's that onboarding period that we're able to download all of the strategic thinking. So like you said, we sit down with the founders or the CEOs or whoever's in charge um, of you know this portion of the business. Um, and we first have a strategy call. So it's usually an hour and a half. And we're literally just downloading everything from them. So we're kind of thinking through... Um, we'll ask questions such as like, you know, what is, um, what are the key things that you've seen that customers who've never bought from you before really need to know about your brand or your products to make that decision? Um, what are, what are common things that common, uh, products that someone can buy that if they can try these two or three products from you, they get really bought in to what you guys sell. And then from there, they usually become kind of a raving fan or, you know, there's at least a higher likelihood of repeat purchases. Um, we'll talk about, you know, what's your approach to discounting as, as a brand? Um, what are your margins? Um, do you like discounting? What do you see? Like how, you know, what types of discounts have you run? When do you like to do discounting? Some brands want to do it once a month as a flash sale. Some brands are like, I, we want avoid it completely. So 
Now, those are just kind of a few example questions to kind of give you an idea of like how, again, how people should be thinking about doing email and SMS. We don't ask things like how many emails do you want to send per month or, um, you know, who, which, which kind of customers do you want to send to? Because that's our job. Um, it's our, but it's our job to understand the business first for us to make those decisions and understand yeah. the customer first. So we really start like very, very high level. And that's why we say we do retention lifecycle marketing because we don't ask email questions. We ask like business questions. Um, so we start with that. And then we also do kind of a similar call on the creative side, more so understanding, you know, what, what resonates with your customers, their mindset, their t- your tone, voice, your brand of your, uh, of your, uh, business. And we spend the entire time doing a pretty deep download. And then from there we do a strategy roadmap. So that's where we present, you know, three to six months strategy. And that gets very in depth uh, around, you know, what types of flows do we want to build? What's, what are your key business goals and how is that, how are we executing on those goals through Mm -hmm. flows and campaigns? Um, We'll walk through what kind of AB tests that we want to run as well. Um, And then we also build a very, very in-depth flow map. So with some of our like long-term clients, we built out flow maps for a six-month customer life cycle journey. So you essentially have every single email that they're going to get in a flow setting for six months. And all those emails are built and timed to what your goals need to be. So it's like at the three-month mark, they typically churn. At the six-month mark, if they haven't churned, then we want them to buy XYZ product. At this month, we want them to do X, Y, Z. And then we we kind of structure the entire journey. So that's kind of how strategy is executed. And then from there, we, you know, we usually we do the usual of like build a brief, pass it over to creative. They understand what portion of the customer journey they're writing for, and they also understand like the vision for the email. And then it's their job to, to execute on that. Incredible. It's 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 like a person, you know, when when you talk about six months ahead of flow that's, you know, stretching out to six months, you're, you're talking about persuasion. You know, it's a it's an art of pers- soft persuasion, obviously. Um, uh, you know, based on action. So so yeah, it's phenomenal. I like I can't imagine the tree structure, the branches you have, you know, based on um, you know, um certain actions and um certain triggers over a six month period. I don't want to see that tree, it would intimidate me. Yeah. Which I'm a nerd, so, what, what <laughs> so I'm like, oh my god, this is the most beautiful thing on earth. Like, I'm like, what? Beautiful Look at this that complexity. And you probably start to to draw um, symmetric parallels, you know, um, and, and all of that stuff, um, which which probably brings me to the fact that um, I, gu- I guess your your actual you know science um, um, you know background is an analytical background is is really allowing you you know, develop these sophisticated, you know, flows. How do you sort of export that to team members? Um, because that's what companies are all about, really. Um, do you, for your, for the strategy team members, are, are they are they like analytical, um, you know, personality types? That is a great question. Um, so I think with... That's really where systems come in. And I guess there's kind of two, two pieces to that. One is a lot of our team training is actually on how to think um, versus how to do. So hmm. while a lot of our training, our onboarding um, is built off of like, here are the principles that we're operating off of. Um, here's what customer lifecycle marketing means like to us. Like here's our approach to A-B testing. Um, here's our approach to deciding what success looks like. Like here's what... Are, we see the role of email in the broader scheme of the business. So a lot of our training is actually very foundations driven. And one of my, one of the things that's really important for me is eventually, you know, start a nonprofit in the education space. So I'm really, I hate the word passionate, but so I've been trying to avoid it, but um, I'm really, I really find education to be very important. Um, so everything that we do has been built around um, 
how do you educate from the ground up? And again, that's where having a really great COO um, and operations team is so important. Um, our operations team, again, is like world-class. Um, our HR uh, director is amazing and they do a really great job of funneling everything in my brain that is actually not very good for training, not very good for you know broad understanding and, and building it to kind of bite-sized onboarding materials. So I think one part to answer your question is essentially like having an operations team really partner with me to say like, here's how I think about this. Here's everything in my brain. Here's my approach. And they're like, okay, great. Like that is not understandable. You need to describe it in a different way. Um, here's this needs to get bro- broken down to a three week course. And like that you can't teach until like six months in, cause they need to know all these other things first. And like, these are not the things that would come up to me. So I think first answer is like really finding someone who can download it out of your brain. Cause I think yeah. the people who like entrepreneurs are usually not good trainers really. Um, they're not really good. Again, managers, the very different skill set. Um, and I think the other thing is uh, building systems around it. So we have a lot of systems for even for analytics. We have systems around like when to flag, when certain metrics are notable um, mm-hmm. and starting to kind of codify the thinking process and spend time saying like, um, I decided to do it this way for these reasons. Like what are the three things that you saw? Because a lot of entrepreneurs found their initial success by being intuitive, but intuitive is not scalable. Um, and you, it has to be built in a way that is a complete no brainer. So all the systems we build are built, assuming someone knows nothing about email coming in as a strategist. Obviously we hire strategists who know email already, but build it as if like this person doesn't know email, doesn't know anything, has no experience in the space. How would you explain it to them? And then bring in really high, high, like highly talented, experienced people to work off of those systems. Um, but then they they have the space to flex their creativity um, versus having to worry about like doing it everything your way. Um, but again, it's been a very iterative process. Interesting, interesting. Um, I'm cognizant that time is 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 fast running out. Um, probably elapsed the. <laughs> I'm the so enjoying the conversation. Forty five minute. Oh, that's that, that's a pleasure. Pleasure is mine. Um, we, we, we've talked about lifecycle marketing email, but we haven't spoken to SMS. You know, where does it fit now in the ecosystem? One, and um, for brands that um, have sort of missed the 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 SMS list build-in phase, how do they sort of augment or um, yeah augment or, or add to um, you know customer data? You know, email. You know, um, just sorry, SMS. <clears throat> SMS information or cell phone number information of their customers. What, what, why is SMS so critical? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's definitely every brand should try to do SMS. Um, I do think that if I had to choose between the two channels, I would still go email first just because it runs a lot deeper. Um, and I think if people kind of look into the data around the SMS industries and email industries, I do think that SMS is a little bit inflated in terms of how effective it is. Just if you look at like basic attribution windows and things like that. So right. do you think that's something to consider? Cause I've heard, I think over the last few years, especially there was a lot of like hype initially of like SMS is going to beat out email and like, Oh my gosh, generating these insane amounts of revenue. And then when you actually dig into the attribution windows, it's eh, doesn't, doesn't look quite right. Um, so I think that's something to kind of for each brand to kind of decide on their own. Um, but in terms of SMS, again, because we approach everything from a customer journey and lifecycle standpoint first, we actually sit down and just say like, when does it make sense to communicate this thing through email? Like when does it commun- make sense to communicate this thing through SMS? So 
we think we sit down first, say like what needs to be said to the customer and when, and then from there, we're like, which channel would best support that? Is it an email type communication or is it an SMS type communication? Um, so we do, we, our strategy definitely still skews slightly more on the email side, but I think there's a lot of opportunity for something like an abandoned cart. Let's say we might send an abandoned cart email and if they don't open it, then, uh, then we send an SMS as a follow-up. And sometimes yeah. we'll flip it. Some customer, some some brands that we work with, SMS, SMS works really well for some reactive purchase. So if, in that case, we might say like, okay, if they don't open the SMS and buy off it, then we send them the email. So we kind of see email and SMS more like a one-two punch. But again, mm-hmm. it goes back to the whole, what do we want to say to them first and which channel makes yeah. the most sense for that? Yeah. Um, the- and then in terms of... Oh, sorry, to answer your second question. No, no, question. Go, go for it, please. Go. Yeah, in terms of list growth, um, really leverage your email list first. Um, so basic tactics here are just, one, make sure you start A-B testing, incorporating SMS into your email capture. Um, so if you can capture both email and SMS and it doesn't affect your conversion rates, that's great. Do that first. Um, or at the very least, if someone opts into email, um, you can follow up You know when they return to capture their SMS for like returning customers or if they don't even opt into email, try hitting them again with an SMS request as well. So just figure out how to incorporate SMS into your capture, but A-B test for sure. Um, and the second one is we use a lot of, we use email to kind of grow with the SMS list. We'll add in like banners, um, footers to get people to opt into the SMS and also leveraging your you know promotions and product launches for SMS as well. So SMS gets early access. Opt-in, we have this new product launch coming up. We think it's going to sell out pretty quickly. Um, get on the list, SMS gets first notification, and then email gets a second notification, and then it goes out to the broader list. So really treating your SMS and email list as, you know, VIPs. Interesting. Super, super interesting. Um, and I also hear um, be more helpful with with SMS in general, with your SMS comms rather than salesy, um, and only, you know, sort of pull that card um, when necessary, like a sale, like a real, you know, urgent sale. Um which brings me to other communication or chat platforms. Um, we have WhatsApp. WhatsApp is significantly huge. Um, and, you know, Messenger used to be big in the times of, um, you know, Facebook's dominance. And, and then there's there's also, um, you know, messaging in, uh, or DM messaging on, on, on platforms such as um, Instagram and TikTok. Where do you think all this fits um, in just in the arsenal of D2C brands trying to, you know, um, you know, deliver a, a long-term relationship with, with their customer base? Um, that's a good question. I think our approach or more of our way to think about it is a little bit different in the sense where every channel can be effective for anyone, but not for everyone. Um, and one, it's about finding the right channels for you. So just be if WhatsApp works beautifully for you might be like the worst investment for another company. Um, so it's more about, again, thinking like, are my customers on WhatsApp in the first place? Like I actually don't know the demographic of WhatsApp these days, but like, let's say WhatsApp is primarily like 35 year old women, um, or at least like 35 year olds. And you're targeting 19 year olds who don't use WhatsApp. Like this channel's not going to work for you. So like one, just do some kind of basic, you know, are my customers even using this platform? Second is, do I have the resources to actually test this thing? I find the biggest uh, issue that uh, brands run into um, and entrepreneurs run into is just kind of like the shiny object syndrome. So it's like, oh, SMS is working for someone. They made so much money off of it. Someone's making money off of Messenger. Someone's making money off of like TikTok 
chat or whatever. I don't even, I'm clearly not on TikTok. I don't even know if they have chat, um, but um, it's that distraction. So I think it's less so of would this channel work? And it's more like, do you have the resources right now to spend time on it and do it properly? And any channel, I think a lot of channels can work if you do it properly, but most people don't have the resources to do it all properly. So you kind of need to pick and choose. Um, and I guess like our approach to developing new services is um, it's actually not our priority to be first to market. Um, if everyone is super hype right now, but WhatsApp chat, we're like, great, let's see if it still stands in like a year, two years. Um, and we'd rather be the best in market than the first to market. Um, and we don't really kind of jump on each individual platform. So we actually take some time to kind of wait and see um, if it works well. Everyone has a different approach. So that's not really a right or wrong type thing. But I think it is really more about the conversation of like, can you get the ROI there? And do you have the uh, do you have the resources to do, to do it properly in order to get that potential ROI from that channel or mm -hmm. platform? Interesting. Final question is um, 2020 e-commerce marketing versus 2022. The completely two different experiences do you want to share a bit of light um on on what you're experiencing now um in 2022 um there's you know there's an all-time the, the there's there's recession you know consumers discretionary income is is um significantly dropped um how are you know um best in class e-commerce businesses you know sort of you know, um, tackling um, these challenges, and um, what what advice do you give to to listeners? It's it's a genuine question I've been asking for the last three months now to to every guest that comes on the on the podcast. Yeah, I think um, I think best in class cut or brands really are, and it's what we're doing with our clients as well. It's like really doubling down on the customer relationship. Um, and not using this as a chance for a cash grab because at the end of the day, like right now, finances are just very sensitive for a lot of people again going into the recession um and at the same time ads are becoming more expensive i don't know what is going on with facebook these days i know it's been one roller coaster after another um and acquisition and top of funnel is becoming more difficult um so and then more expensive um so now is really the time to focus a little bit more on that retention and life cycle marketing side and i would say that regardless of whether or not that was kind of the space that we're working in but Again, there's so many statistics around, you know, it's so much, it's like five times cheaper to keep a customer than to find a new one. Um, mm -hmm. So right now, really focusing on keeping your customers, building that loyalty, because right now going into recession, everyone has fewer discretionary dollars. Um, everyone's going to spend a little bit less um, on, on kind of the luxury items or the not, not necessary items. Um, so it becomes a battle for the wallet around like which brands are they going to continue spending with? Um, and, and with that comes kind of that loyalty building as well. Um, I do think there's a little bit more discounting that's happening. Um, and, I, and I don't think that's a bad thing, especially if you have the market, uh, the margins for it, but I do think the best brands are doing it in a very careful way um, and not making it like a flash sale not making it too, too gross. Um, but how do you position your sales in a way that's kind of rewarding loyalty or, and still preserving like the quality of your brand, um, but also kind of supporting your customers a little bit more and giving them a little bit more of that breathing room, making things a little bit cheaper. Um, so I think really kind of balancing those two, like build your brand loyalty, double down on like really making sure you create a great client and customer experience. Cause the worst thing someone wants to feel is like, man, I only had like 
hundred dollars to spend this much on like something luxurious that I was excited for. And then I bought it and it was sh- a shitty experience all the way through. And they kept spamming me with things, right? Like that's just, yeah. a, that's not a great retention strategy. So yeah. being aware of that and then um, just discounting if possible, but again, in a very light, you know, still branded um, way. Yeah. Yeah. Jess, I could go on, on and I could go on and on and on. I actually have another podcast recording fairly soon, but um, really, really appreciate your time, you know, sharing your story, long play brands, you know, story, long play, yeah, um, long place, you know, journey. Um, for those people who want to find out more about long play brands, it's longplaybrands.com, L O N G P L A Y B R A N D S dot com. Um, is, is your company or are you active on, on any social, you know, media platforms? We actually, we're kind of active on um, LinkedIn, I'd say, but again, in line with the fact that our greatest asset is that we have actually not done much marketing. Um, we are not super active on a lot of social media platforms. Hopefully it's going to change in the next you know year or so. Um, but our website's still the best place to reach us. Great. Brilliant, brilliant. We'll link up to to your website, your and and, um, and and all your social handles and in the show notes. Jess, thank you so much for coming on to us to Commerce Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of 2X e-commerce. We encourage you to connect with our community of 2X e-commerce listeners on our Facebook group, e-commerce growth accelerator mastermind. Just search for 2X e-commerce on Facebook to find it. Answer three questions and you'll be approved. Grab the show notes of this episode on our website, 2xecommerce.com. Finally, if you haven't already, give the show a review on your podcasting app. Catch you on the next show and keep growing.